Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CX Cast. Sam Stern joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have two guests. One in studio is senior total economic impact consultant, Ben Brown. Hi, Ben. Hello. And of course, we have back from our San Francisco office, our dear friend and colleague, Ryan Hart. Hi, Ryan. Hi, everyone. And you are both here because you've been working on research on the ROI of design thinking. Now, I would never have imagined you could calculate the ROI of design thinking, so very intrigued by the title and by the topic. And I think that's a really good question, listeners, for you to be thinking about, as we'll answer for you, is what is the ROI of design thinking? How do you measure that? How do you calculate that? So maybe let's step back from that question first to an earlier one of what is the purpose of measuring the ROI of design thinking? Why do this research? And let me just, you know, put my cards on the table here a little bit. It seems to me that all these companies are talking about doing design thinking, right? That they're trying to train people to have that mindset. They've got a design thinking methodology and approach in-house. So it's adopted. They don't need to prove the ROI. They're already doing it. So why prove the ROI of it? How does that help? I think the spike comes the growing prevalence of design thinking. You see areas of the organization that are doing design thinking and using it effectively, but really to scale that across the enterprise and actually embed that as business as usual process and get everyone to adopt that mindset. I think really more support and more attention is needed both financially as well as senior level support. Design thinking practice is being used very surgically for just very small scale specific projects and very difficult to see that have impact on some of the larger, more significant projects that people are trying to get across the line. Yeah. So if I could summarize some of that, the lack of ROI case for design thinking is part of what holds it back from becoming this enterprise-wide capability because you're seeing it get adopted in all these little ways and probably in different flavors across an organization, but no one can quantify and show how beneficial it would be if we did it the right way across the organization. And you know, if uh, someone launches a design thinking practice, they do a few projects after a couple of years, it's bright and shiny at first. A couple of years go by and you start having to show where the money is. Why are we investing in this? Is it working? And so that's where I think designers really start to struggle because they don't know how to do that. And that's something we're trying to help here. And you might have initial momentum with project leaders that are excited by it. But then when you want the whole organization to do it and they don't believe in it, they don't understand it. They think it's just another buzzword. How do you convince them to start spreading through the organization? Yeah, I can see that this is much needed. I know that I take phone calls all the time asking, you know, what is the business case of even needing a prototyping tool, right? Or doing user research. <laughs> so I can imagine answering this larger question is really helpful and also can help to set the framework for everything that follows. And I have seen not a lot, but a few counterintuitive sort of like, oh, design thinking is a waste or, you know, and there's at least one on our HBR yeah. recently about how design thinking is, you know, misleading or doesn't lead to real innovation. So I think we might be getting to a stage where we actually do really want to quantify the benefit even more so because we need to actually push back against skeptics armed with an HBR article. Well, you know, there was an HBR article right around the same time that actually was highly in support of it as well. Uh, yeah. So there's definitely a lot of different voices. <laughs> right. Yeah. People can find an HBR article to support whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever they want, to, want do, to do, right? That does bring me to one question, though, I wanted to ask, which is just to be sort of crystal clear on what we mean when we say design thinking in this context. So there is design thinking as the mindset. We're talking about design thinking as a practice, which some people may think is similar to you know, having an experienced design practice or just people who are skilled to follow all the steps in the design thinking process. But then there's also just design thinking as the process. Right, so the ROI of applying a design thinking process to a question or problem that you may have versus you know, not applying that process. In the context of this research, how was design thinking being used or defined? 
So we tried to steer away from talking about design thinking as a process because it has a tendency to be used to talk about things that are in linear and sequential and fashion. Mm -hmm. We try to think of design thinking as being more open-ended, creative, and iterative. So we define this in the report as a method for problem-solving and innovation based on long-standing practices among professional designers and codified into five activities. These are related but not sequential to be accessible to others, such as empathizing, defining, ideating, prototyping, testing. And so in this report, we refer to a mature design thinking practice as one that has scaled to the point that the methodology is embedded in ongoing projects led by experienced facilitators. Ah, that's a very clear definition. Good for you guys. Very good. Very good. (laughs) Impressed. All right. So... Let's maybe have a drum roll, please. And then what is the ROI of design thinking? Yeah, so we looked at it in two ways. One for individual projects, because a lot of folks are trying it out once or twice. Mm -hmm. And another separate way of an actual mature design thinking practice, kind of getting the question you asked before. So first of all, for an individual project, the ROI will range significantly. There's certain benefits that come from just the way you work. And those are fairly consistent. But then if you're doing something that focuses on internal or external people, you know, it's going to vary a lot. And so we saw the per project return on investment varying, you know, anywhere as low as the low teens or 20%, pretty much to the moon, depending on what it is you're doing and how what sort of investment you're making. We saw that three quarters of the projects we modeled, though, all at least doubled their investment. The median was 229% for a given project. When you zoom out to a practice overall, there's certain costs that come in. You might bring in a partner, you might bring in some designers or executives that aren't really working on individual things, and there's a little bit of weight there. Could even you know, invest in some rooms or something. And at that level, once you do a bunch of projects, Projects, once you make the investment and train a whole bunch of your workforce, that's where we saw a median or an average return on investment of 85% for a full practice. That's based on four different industry models. So you can see where on an individual basis, projects might have a much higher return initially. But when you look at the practice overall, that's really averaging all of those training and all those things together. That's where you get the 85% return for the, the entire design thinking practice. So you just mentioned several different factors. And so when I'm thinking about what were the inputs into this model, I can imagine that there were a ton of inputs that sort of really reigned the spectrum from time to market or maybe even success of the product that comes out or collaboration internally. Can you share what some of those inputs into the model are? There's a couple categories we looked at. There was uh, three broad benefit categories we looked at, two broad cost categories, and then there's lots of sub-elements of those. There's actually 25 different subcategories within the financial model we built. So I won't get into all of those here because that's <laughs> something you'd really want to turn to the report for. Yes. But broadly, we had benefits that affect the change or change the way you work. Then we had benefits that impact the outcomes of a project and then benefits that change the organization at large, cultural change, those sorts of things. And then there's all sorts of sub benefits within those. And on the cost side, you've got project specific costs like getting people into a workshop. And then you've got organizational costs like bringing in designers or getting whiteboards and markers, whatever that might be. Those are all included across those 25 subcategories. Go back to that 85% number of doing this at an enterprise basis. Where's the biggest source of ROI making up that 85%? So uh, personally, I would recommend staying away from which one is the largest towards which one is the most common. And so what I would suggest is that you think about these benefits about changing the way you work, working more efficiently, working more faster, getting to good ideas more quickly. 
you would experience those regardless of what sort of project you're working on. As long as you're you know, working with the design thinking methodology, there's those benefits and those are consistent and they represent about half of the benefits we measured. But let's say you then use design thinking and come with a project that you launch a new product off of and makes millions of dollars. That could be your biggest dollar impact, but that's a one-time only thing. And so it really depends what your goals are. And so the project results will vary substantially, but the process benefits will always be there. Right. There's benefits that are almost universally realized if you get good at doing this. And those are important. I think there's one thing also that we kind of zoomed in on that I thought was really important is that you're really effectively reducing the time to reach the product market fit. And so that basically means that it reduces the time to complete projects that satisfy the needs of end users. And so the benefits, obviously, from that is that you're gaining a competitive advantage, you're driving increased adoption, you're generating revenue in a shorter amount of time constantly iterating, you're constantly getting, you have this continuous feedback loop with the customer and you're actually building something that so closely aligns with what the customer exactly wants that all of those benefits can be realized sooner. So gone are the days that someone would create a product and then put it out in the market and then customers would struggle to adopt it because they didn't know how to use it and they'd have to do advertising and support and all those things. So if you think of it very simply that way, I think reducing that time to reach the product market fit is a really important piece of calculating core benefits for design thinking. And that really comes from, uh, you know, along the way, doing each step more efficiently, getting that feedback early. Not only do you have those competitive advantages, but you also happen to save some labor along the way. Um, and right. those together really are the same benefit, but quantified in different ways. Yeah. yeah. And it's great to quantify it too, because often it can be hard to make the case because a lot of the benefit is the fact that something worse didn't happen. It's yeah, we launched a product that really worked and that's because we talked to users at the beginning. And so it worked. So if we hadn't done this, we would have launched something that failed but I can't show that to you because we didn't launch what failed because it was successful. And so I think that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you were able to do it in this model, sort of parse out the benefits incrementally as you go through the process of doing all of the steps, getting the research, getting the better market fit so that you can put some numbers around that. In our research, you know, we had countless examples of companies that avoided multi-million dollar investments into something that ultimately the customer didn't want, need, or care to use. So that was a big piece of it. Yeah. I mean, and actually that's, that's one of the biggest ones we heard all the time. Um, There's a lot of investments out there that should never have been made. And even if you just slightly increase your chances of not making that bad investment, that can be big. It is a little hard to compare on a case-by-case basis, but when you look at a product development team or an organization as a whole or whatever it is that they're doing, look across projects, you can start to see some trends come out. And we heard a lot of examples of that. On the other side of it too, maybe you sat down and you end up killing a project, but you came up with a new one. Or a lot of the times people to get together. They start talking, these cross-functional teams together, different employees that have never met in the past, let alone talked about the problems. And lo and behold, we all have the same problems. And you start uh, finding all these redundant processes and you start eliminating those. And the intention of the project could have been to launch a new offering. And along the way, the actual benefits you got could have been We discovered we're all collaborating with six different softwares. Maybe we can consolidate. It can really take you in any direction. And and so it's not only uh, getting rid of a a project that's going to be a bad investment now, it's also discovering bad investments you've already made that you just didn't realize were redundant. Yeah, we had a couple of good examples from OCBC, which is a Singaporean bank, and they, they talked about how they were able to reduce error rates for a, just a, a simple paper form um, that people made mistakes on, you know, maybe changing their address, for example, from 20, 25 to 30%. They were able to reduce that just to 1% by applying design thinking to the redesign of the form. And so if you think about there's roughly $30 per form reprocessing fee. When you have 1,500 plus forms of those each month, it's a massive amount of savings. 
right? And being able to find that error in the form early on before it's rolled out across mm -hmm. every single experience by doing a little user testing, right? During the prototype could save you a lot of time in the long term and prevent you from investing in some technology to support this, uh, this form that maybe you don't need to. Yeah, and you know, there's an interesting uh, aspect here that we haven't really mentioned in that it's not just getting the feedback from the customers early on in those ideas. It's not just finding that we're doing redundant work, but getting these folks working together, getting to know each other has some impact on cultural change and moving faster, coming up with good ideas. And it also really helps with buy-in so that increasing that time to product market fit. Well, if you don't have to go through the steps of let's do research, now let's write it up in a document. Now let's pass around an executive committee. Now let's go back and forth and back and forth. Suddenly everyone's in the room with the same data, with the same ideas, and each person walks out thinking that idea was theirs. It was you know, part of their groups and the buy-in process is much faster and there's much less need to write out these long requirements documents and go through that whole project management just to come up with the idea. People feel empowered, feel like they're part of the decision. And when they start working on it, you get to it faster and they actually care about the result. They think that it's a good idea already. You don't have to convince them. We see this a lot around employee experience, around culture, when they want employees to feel more innovative. The lack of a defined way of how you would do that is a major barrier and feeling like I am not supported, I'm not allowed in quotes as an employee to be innovative is often all that stands in between employees having good ideas that they can actually execute on and not even bothering. And having even a right. you know an associate level person or the mailroom person, whatever it might be, be able to give ideas equally to the CEO that's in yeah. the room. And it really helps identify those ideas regardless of who they came from. Yeah, that's right. So speaking really to the purpose of this research is, again, on the back of that, it's really to empower people to create a better business case to support the scaling and, and the growth of the design thinking as a practice. It's a two-part report. Part one summarizes the results and summarizes the inputs and the outputs, the benefits and the cost. Uh, and then the second report will be about how companies can then use this methodology and this tool to apply it to their own organizations in a more contextual way that actually will be more relevant, for example, their specific use case for design thinking. Yeah. And so what Ryan alluded to there is that this tool that we built to calculate it, we did these industry models, we found these results and, you know, that 85% and that 229%. Well, we're turning that tool into something that our readership can use and something that they can actually use to measure themselves. So that second report should hopefully help teach designers to do some of this measurement and give them some resources to do it themselves. Thank you for joining us. This is really interesting. And uh, listeners, if you want more detail, if you want to geek out on the ROI data, we've got it for you. There's four scenarios in the report that look at different use cases and how the ROI actually played out in those examples. There's data by industries. There's all kinds of different ways to look at this. So you can examine the data to your heart's content. We have posted a link to the report in the show notes, and we'll talk to you all on next week's CXCast. Goodbye for now. Thanks to our colleagues Amanda Chen for recording and mixing the episode and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at forrester.com. And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.